So as a recap about where we are now in Judges, Judges takes place generations after Exodus, after Israel was delivered from slavery by God's great power. And the Israelites are now in the promised land. And what we see is the Israelites abandon their covenant with God and adopt the pagan practices of the surrounding nations. And over the past several chapters, we've seen this cycle of sin where Israel first falls into idolatry and in response, God removes his hand of protection and Israel gets oppressed by another nation. But eventually, Israel cries out for salvation and God intervenes. He sends a judge to deliver them. And these judges were military leaders. With the power of God, they delivered the people from oppression and they brought periods of peace. But soon another generation comes along who strays from God and the cycle just continues again. And now from this point on in the book, the cycle becomes a downward spiral. Things just get worse and worse is this descent into self-destruction. And even the judges themselves start getting worse. Now, at the beginning of Judges 6, it's 40 years after Deborah, what we learned about last week, and we begin a new cycle. In 6 verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The Midianites, they had overwhelming numbers. Verse five compares them to a swarm of locusts who devour all the produce of the land. They would arrive during harvest time and just steal everything that they could take and destroy the rest of the food. So the Israelites were left with nothing. And the oppression was so bad, the Israelites had to hide in the mountains and in caves. And it's no coincidence that uh, the Midianites are compared to locusts. It reminds us of one of the 10 plagues against Egypt, except now, instead of Egypt being judged, Israel itself is judged for its idolatry. 6 verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Here, the, the Lord hears their cries, but he answers differently than he has in any other of the sin cycles. He sends a prophet, the only other prophet we see in the entire book of Judges besides Deborah, and he rebukes the people. 6 verse 10, I say to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So he's saying this is happening because you learned to fear the pagan gods of the land. The word fear here means reverence and respect for something that is powerful and, and probably a bit dangerous. To fear a god is to acknowledge the god's power and strength and to say it's worthy of that kind of reverence. And so uh, Yahweh the Lord, of course, is worthy of such fear, right? But the Israelites instead chose to fear the gods of the land. And now how could they do that? After knowing the stories about God, they're not that far removed from Deborah. Well, they probably thought, those were great stories from the past, but look at what Baal and Asherah are doing for their people right now. Look at how strong the surrounding nations are. The Canaanites were agricultural peoples, so they worshiped 
Baal, the storm god. He either brought rain and prosperity when he was appeased or drought when angered. And so you did everything that you could to make him happy. Essentially, Baal was a god of prosperity. And he was also thought to intervene in the affairs of mankind and help people win battles. So he was a god of security and power. And then there was Asherah, the queen of the Canaanite gods, the fertility goddess. The Canaanites believed that if they were a fertile people, then the land would also be fertile. So more prosperity. This led to temple prostitutes at every holy site. So the Canaanite religion was essentially a religion of wealth, power, and sex. I mean, no wonder it was appealing to the Israelites. So that's the prologue here, setting the stage thematically for everything else that follows. Whom do you trust in fear? Is it God or something else? 6 verses 11 through 12. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So first we see the angel of the Lord. And if you look in your Bibles, uh, you'll see that the word Lord is in all caps. It's kind of like small caps there. Whenever you see that in most of your English translations, that means the original Hebrew is using God's covenant name, Yahweh. So it's the angel of Yahweh. And the angel of Yahweh appears many times in the Old Testament. And he often seems to speak not just on behalf of Yahweh as a messenger, but as Yahweh. It's the angel of Yahweh who reiterates his covenant with Abraham after Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Genesis 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you, He's speaking in the first person, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And it's the angel of Yahweh who appears to Moses in the burning bush. Theologians see these appearances of the angel of Yahweh as visible appearances of God himself, known as theophanies. And it's amazing. Israel is now on its, what, fourth or fifth cycle of rejecting God with no hint of repentance, and yet God comes down to an ungrateful, idolatrous people and walks among them. Why, why do that? It's because the Lord is, as he declared to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, verse 6, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. Some think that the Old Testament God has no grace. But look at this. Yahweh is willing to stoop down and be with his people. He's not a God who leaves us alone in silence, but wants us to find and know him. And not only that, he's, as British poet Francis Thompson calls him, the hound of heaven, willing to pursue us even when we're running from him, or hiding from him at a wine press, which is where he finds Gideon. Gideon, he's threshing wheat in this wine press. It's under a large tree. And why is he there? It says to hide the wheat from the Midianites. Threshing wheat is the process where you separate the grain from the straw. So you crush the wheat and then you toss it up to let the wind blow away the chaff and the grain just falls down and, uh, and it's all done. 
usually you did it in the open, though, so you could have enough wind for that to happen. But with the Midianites, about threshing wheat in the open was dangerous. You're just advertising, hey, come kill me, please. But instead, he hides it to save his food. Angel of the Lord greets Gideon. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, some have seen the statement to be sarcastic, like Gideon uh, or God is roasting Gideon, but I don't think so. The key is in the phrase, the Lord is with you. He's seeing the great warrior Gideon will become with the Lord on his side. And while God may not have been snarky, Gideon is though. 6 verse 13, please my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. What's interesting is he's not questioning Yahweh's existence. Even when the Israelites turned to idolatry, they never had trouble acknowledging that God existed. It was instead a questioning of God's character and power. And this explains their version of idolatry. They saw that the pagans around them were prospering and that they were not. Well, maybe the Lord has abandoned them or uh, maybe he was defeated by the other gods or maybe he just doesn't care about his covenant anymore. Let's find someone else to add to him just to be safe. Ironically, though, God had put Israel under Midian precisely because he was with them. Proverbs 3.12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. A loving parent disciplines their child in order to teach them. But as fickle humans, we we have a, what have you done for me lately kind of attitude. You know, uh, God, your uh, poll results aren't looking so good for 2023. If you don't pick them up, I might replace you. You better get moving on that. The Lord isn't deterred by Gideon. 6 verse 14, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I, not, do I not send you? And Gideon responds, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. How can I save Israel? And here, actually, he's on the right track. He can't save Israel, not on his own. And it would actually be worrisome if Gideon was like, yes, I knew I was destined for greatness. But no, God is looking for someone who knows he has nothing to offer. He's looking for someone who has to rely on him. Gideon says his clan, that's of the Abiezrites, is the weakest in Manasseh. The clans in Israel were basically like a big extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins. And then his tribe was Manasseh. They were located in the northern-ish part of Israel. And then he says he's the least in the household, which means he's probably the youngest son. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, they saw the oldest as the most worthy of honor. But God often liked to subvert that expectation. There's a clear pattern in the Bible of God choosing the younger brothers to honor, like Abel, Jacob, Joseph. Or David, David was anointed as king over his big, strong brothers, the kinds of people that you would normally want to be king. God repeatedly uses what humans in our limited wisdom would call weak to shame what we think is strong. The angel of Yahweh comforts Gideon, but I will be with you. 
It's fulfilling what he had said earlier, that the Lord is with you. It's like the children's song, they are weak, but he is strong. And that's the key. We're not weak when God is with us, but we have to trust him. And Gideon has trust issues. 6 verse 17, and he, Gideon, said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Gideon, at this point, probably thinks he's talking to a prophet and not God, but he wants a sign as assurance. And for Gideon, this won't be the first time or even the second out to last time that he needs a sign. So what he does is he prepares a meal for his guest, which is typical of the hospitality culture of the Near East, even to this day. If you meet a stranger, you offer them a meal. And Gideon does more than just offer a snack. He cooks up a whole goat, makes broth from the goat, and then cooks up a bunch of unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. An ephah equals to about six gallons of flour. So that's a lot of bread. And it was an extremely generous gift, especially considering how scarce food was because of the Midianites. The angel of Yahweh has Gideon place the meal on the nearby rock, and then the messenger touches the food with his staff, and suddenly it's eaten up by flames, and he vanishes from sight. And finally, Gideon realizes who his guest was, so he cries out, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, which is a typical reaction people have when they realize they've been in the presence of a holy God. But instead of smiting Gideon, the Lord encourages him. 6 verse 23, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon responds by building an altar on the site to commemorate the moment and set the place apart as sacred. Then without even waiting to see if Gideon has decided to jump on board, God gives Gideon a mission. 625, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So the mission is not first, let's stop the bad guys and then we'll deal with your issues. No, it's first Tear down your idols. God's biggest concern is the faithfulness of his people. But far too often, we have to order backwards and think all our problems are because of everything out there when it really started with our own sin and idolatry. So Gideon takes 10 of his servants and they just go do some holy vandalism real quick. And the author then is quick to point out that he did this at night because he was afraid. And we're going to see this a lot with Gideon, this complicated intermingling of faith and doubt. And I want to give credit where credit is due, though. He obeys, even as we will see at great risk to his life. And this shows we can't just cleanly categorize Gideon into either a coward or a hero. And I love that about the Bible. It shows that people are complex, more complex than we usually recognize. The villagers immediately know Gideon did it. Nighttime didn't help. They're just like, yeah, he did it. And Gideon's fears come true. They want to kill him. And this shows how far gone the Israelites are, that they are willing to kill to defend their idols. Their prosperity and their way of life are being threatened. We might not have a good harvest now. You're stealing food from my kids' mouths. When someone touches our idols, that's when we really freak out, right? 
And Gideon's father, though, Joash, thankfully doesn't give in to the mob. He says in 6 verse 31, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. He's basically saying, if Baal is so strong and mighty, then he's going to deal with Gideon way better than any of us could. So the mob lets Gideon go, content to leave him in the hands of their mighty storm God. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. And the new name sets up the rest of Gideon's story. It basically ends up saying that Gideon's continued existence is now a challenge to Baal. We then transition in the story again. The Midianites gather up their allies into an army and camp in the valley of Jezreel, also known as Megiddo or Armageddon. Ooh, yeah. And uh, this is a massive army. We read later in chapter eight that it was about 135,000 men. Six verse 34. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. So he empowers him. And, and now the same people who were just trying to kill Gideon answer his call to arms. Gideon sounds a trumpet to muster the troops. And this isn't like our modern day mass, uh, our brass trumpets. Uh, they are made out of ram's horn with the, just the point cut off there. And these horns are also known as a shofar. I've been to a couple of conferences where there's just like a random shofar guy walking around with the shofar he happens to have, and they just like blow it. And it's very loud. It's like bone rattling loud. And um, in the Old Testament, shofars have a lot of spiritual significance, but they were also used militarily. Like here, horns were used to signal to troops, a call to arms. And one of the most significant uses of the shofar in battle is of course, the battle of Jericho where through God's power, Israel's shofar has brought down Jericho's walls. So he gathers his, uh, the Abiezrites, and then Gideon musters men from other northern tribes. They're ready for battle, except maybe Gideon. 6 verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. After everything, Gideon's still like, mm, I'm not sure. Which is funny, he's already seen signs. The Lord has been very clear about his plan. I am going to rescue Israel through you. But now that the battle is at hand, Gideon's looking for a way out. And amazingly, God answers. And the fleece is not just a little bit moist, but it's so soaked that he wrings out a bowl full of water from the fleece. And yet the ground is completely dry. There's no denying that God did this. Okay, great, green light, go Gideon. But just like that, Gideon goes back on his word, and asks just for just for one more little sign, just to be sure he asked for the inverse of the first sign, for the wool to be dry, but the ground to be wet. And God in his infinite patience does it again. So what's going on here? Gideon is showing his pagan roots. Remember the altar was his father's, the altar to Baal. 
He's practicing what is called divination, where you give the pagan god a test to confirm its will or to discover the future. It's a blatant violation of Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Divination was used as a way to manipulate a God's will. If I don't get the answer I like the first time, I'll ask again until I hear what I want to hear. And it's a form of distrust. God has already spoken. We know what he wants, and yet we need something extra to help us trust beyond his word. And now it's important to point out, though, that this isn't the same thing as doubt. It's okay to ask questions. We shouldn't be afraid of them. God is the God of truth. He can handle a bit of thoughtful inquiry. And 2,000 years of history has shown that Christianity is intellectually credible. Asking questions, in fact, is actually a healthy part of building up our faith in an age where there are so many different alternatives to choose from. In his incredible book, The Reason for God, the late Tim Keller writes, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. So he's saying, our faith needs to become our own. Now, if we doubt correctly, emphasis on correctly, then we'll be able to build up those antibodies. And so when future questions come, our hearts will be ready for them. Doubting correctly starts with seeking the truth, knowing that there are answers out there. We just have to find them. It's not just living with a nihilistic view where, oh, there must be no knowable truth or thinking, well, everything is true, which is really just another way of saying nothing is true. It's about seeking the truth. It's okay to wonder, is any of this right? God doesn't scoff at genuine questions. He meets us where we're at. In the Gospel of Mark, a father begs Jesus to heal his demon-possessed son. Mark 9, 22 through 24, and the father says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals the boy. Sometimes it's just the desire for faith that's enough. It's the start that gets us on the right path. Help my unbelief. But what we see with Gideon is obstinance, a willful choice to not believe even after all the evidence is already pointing in one direction. Did God really say that? It all comes down to trust in God. And that's the question posed to humanity over and over again in the narrative of scripture. Adam and Eve, do you trust that God has his best for you when he says, don't eat of that tree? Abraham, do you trust that God can bring forth a child and a nation out of your and Sarah's old bodies? Israel, do you trust God to deliver you from slavery and lead you through the wilderness? Gideon, 
Do you trust God to protect you even with all the odds stacked against you? Our salvation is the same way. Do you trust that Jesus' death is sufficient enough to pay for your sins and wash you clean? Do you believe that through his resurrection, he conquered death and that even in your own dying, death cannot hold you? We want tangible things, though, like a fleece to reassure us. But we must remember that God has already spoken. He's already revealed himself. To quote Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. We miss these things because there's a part of us holding ourselves back and we know what God has asked of us. It's laid out plainly in the Bible. The problem is whether we actually believe that it is what is best. Chapter seven, verse one. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. So the whole fleece thing seems to have bolstered Gideon's faith. And you'll notice that it reminds us of Gideon's new name, Jerubbaal. The author, he doesn't want us to forget what this battle is really about. Gideon's existence is an indictment against Baal. If Gideon is to win a victory in battle now, then it will truly show which God is mightier, which is worthy of fear and reverence. Gideon, he has gathered 32,000 men from the surrounding tribes. And it's not much when you have to fight 135,000, but it's at least something. But God decides that he's now going to do the testing. Does Gideon truly trust God to win the victory? Or will he trust more in his own strength or what little he has of it? Seven, verse two, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. So God looks at the 32,000 and thinks, yeah, that's too easy. He wants to make it abundantly clear that he is the only one doing the saving. He alone is strong. God first has the fearful and the trembling of the 32,000 sent home. This followed the laws of exemption from war that God gave in Deuteronomy 20 verses one through eight. And it's ironic considering who's leading the army, but 22,000 head home, leaving them with just 10,000. So now the Midianite army only has 13 and a half times more people. Uh, God looks at that ratio and goes, yeah, still too big. So he tells Gideon, take your troops to the water to drink. And if there's anyone who scoops up the water to their mouth, then keep them. And then if there's anyone who kneels down to the water to drink, send them home. After the second test, Gideon's army shrinks again, this time to only 300. That's a 99% reduction from what he had originally started with. And this is where I believe Gideon's faith is the strongest in the entire story. You don't see him whine or complain to the Lord. He just obeys. He had a chance to ignore God's command to reduce, to reduce his army by 99%. And he could have just marched ahead with what he had, better than 300, right? But at this point, Gideon finally realizes our strength was never going to win the battle. And so we need to go all in on relying on God. Faith, it's not just believing God, but acting in light of that reality. It's like Peter stepping out of the boat to walk on water when Jesus calls him. It's Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac. 
You can't truly know the quality of your faith until you're willing to take a step out into the unknown and fully place the outcome in God's hands. When Gideon is honored in Hebrews 11.32 as being a man of faith, albeit imperfect, of course, uh, I believe it's for this act right here, willing to completely say, God, I am in your hands now, and there's nothing else I can do. This kind of faith is not easy because to trust like this, we have to acknowledge that we are weak, that we can't do it on our own, that our fate is not in our own hands. And we don't like that. That's, I mean, like one of the main messages of our culture today, that you are in charge of yourself. That's why idolatry was so alluring for the Israelites. We just add Baal and Asherah to our worship of Yahweh, then we'll have all our bases covered. What's wrong with that? We want the victory without the vulnerability. And so we reject weakness. We, we reject ways, methods, and means that could in any way compromise our goals. We pursue strength, saying that, well, it's for good things, but before we know it, strength becomes an end unto itself. The theologian Marva Don once wrote, even as Christ accomplished atonement for us by suffering and death, so the Lord accomplishes witness to the world through our weakness. In fact, God has more need of our weakness than our strength. Just as powers overstep their bounds and become God's, so our power becomes a rival to God. And God will suffer no rivals. God is saying, I don't need the strong. I choose to use the weak. And that should encourage us because we're all weak. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul writes of some weakness that he struggled with. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Back in Judges now. It's the night before the battle and Gideon being Gideon needs comforting one more time. But what I find interesting about this episode compared to the two previous ones is that God is the one who initiates this interaction. He already has a plan for Gideon's fear. And God in his infinite grace again does not shame Gideon for his fear, he gives a remedy. He tells Gideon, go sneak into the enemy camp and listen in. So Gideon does so and he hears a soldier tell another soldier about a dream he had. The soldier dreamed about a giant loaf of bread coming and just destroying the Midian camp. It's just this big old homicidal chunk of gluten, just wrecking everything. And the, the other soldier interprets the dream as Gideon defeating the Midianites. And Gideon's encouraged by this. His immediate reaction is to worship the Lord. Once again, he is reminded of who is in charge, who truly has the power. He returns back to the camp 
and encourages the men. Gideon divides his 300 into three different companies of 100, and he arms them not with swords, which is what you would normally take in a battle, but with shofars and torches hidden in empty jars. They surround the camp, and it's the beginning of the middle watch at night. So it's the middle of the night, and usually a third of the army would take watch while the other two-thirds slept. And it's at that moment that the Israelites blow their trumpets and smash their jars, their torches burst into flame, and they yell a battle cry. And remember, one shofar is bone-rattling enough. Just imagine 300 of them. And this is in a valley, so the sound is echoing everywhere. It's just a whirlwind of sound. And this would jolt the sleeping portion of the Midianite army awake, completely disoriented. You know, you ever woken up in the middle of the night from like a fire? Like, what is going on? You just have no idea where you are. Are they already in the camp? Are they going to kill us? What's going on? And they look around and see 300 torches surrounding them. And normally... Torches would only be carried by officers in the army. So it looks like there were 300 companies against them, far more than just 300 men or even 32,000. And the Midianites all run around, swords drawn, confused and scared. 7 verse 32. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. The Israelites, they don't even need to raise their own swords. In fact, they probably couldn't have because they had a horn in one hand and a torch in the other. So how do they defeat the Midianites? God does it. One commentator put it, Yahweh fights the battle and he does so with the weapons of his own enemies. And that's just like evil, isn't it? To destroy its own self. The battle is completely won by the Lord and the surviving Midianites flee. And Gideon puts out a call to the surrounding tribes to help pursue the remaining soldiers and capture them. It's very likely that these are the same men that had just been sent home earlier. Now they come and they help finish the battle. They mop up the stragglers and the battle ends at a wine press. So Gideon's story comes full circle. It's God saying, look at where you were and look where I've taken you. You were hiding from your enemies at a wine press, and now you are defeating your enemies at a wine press. This is what happens when you trust me, even in the face of overwhelming odds. The same logic of 300 versus 135,000 is the logic of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It feels so irrational, right? Die so you can live. It takes a lot of trust. A lot of trust to say, I will not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. I am going to set up treasure in heaven. I'm going to live for an eternal city that is more real than all of this that I can see around me. Therefore, I count everything in this life, nothing compared to the immense worth of knowing Christ. I am willing to lose everything for the sake of the call of my King. Just like the Lord was willing to walk beneath the terebinth to call Gideon, God became a man and walked among us. And he's calling us to follow him into weakness and into new life.
want to end by reading a prayer from a book of prayers, Puritan book of prayers called the Valley Vision. If you could bow your heads with me and listen to this prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights, hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. May that be true for us. Let's pray.